If you've got a Bible with you, I would love to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing in our Sermon on the Mount series that we started last week um, in just a moment. I have been now a, a parent for four years, and I know now, after four years of parenting, that a lot of how we parent, or how I parent certainly, is done in tone of voice that there is a massive difference between I've just come down after a long day of work and see Jackson for the first time, Jackson! And we're out in supermarket, don't want to make a scene, Jackson. The tone of voice carries the message, doesn't it? And because it is so vital... To, how, to not just what is said, but how it is said. It is vital as we get into this Sermon on the Mount, this, this long extended discourse from Jesus, that we are able to pick up something of his tone, not just the words that he's saying. And so we started some of this last week, and we saw how this sermon, although it has many challenging things in it, and it, 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 to, our, to our ears first time round, we might think, wow, this is not an easy listen Actually, we saw saw that it is a great invitation from Jesus. That contained within the sermon is an invitation into true human flourishing, to live the good life. And this week we're going to continue to build on just that. And we're going to come across one of the major themes that Jesus uh, brings out in, in this whole sermon. That Jesus asks uh, kind of getting into why does Jesus ask, or what is he asking of us in these really tough passages that we come across? And we'll see that Jesus is providing the life in Christ and provoking us towards life in Christ that we long for. So we're going to read from verse 6 in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll f- go through to verse 12. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the continuation of what we saw last week, the Beatitudes um, that we have. And uh, sorry, could I just ask someone to come and move this, um, this clear screen? Gareth, do you think you could just come and... Sorry, it's just it's quite difficult for me to see over there. I think it's, it's going to prove to be more of a distraction than um, it's worth, worth moving. Thanks so much, mate. We begin, began to look at these beatitude statements, um, the, the, the blessed are that Jesus begins the sermon with. Um, and the, the, the keen attention among you will know that we actually started to look at verse 6 last week. But the reason we're going to return to it is that as we understand verse 6, the, the hungering and the thirsting after righteousness, it actually sets us up to understand more of, uh, of the Beatitudes as a whole and, and the emphatic finale of verses 10 through to 12. And what we started to see last week was that the, um, the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation, as I said before, into 
that Greek word makarios, that is a very difficult word for us to translate directly into English, but just the idea of there is a way of being in this world, a way of living our lives that Jesus is laying out here and inviting us into that is a way of truly flourishing, of living a good or or blessed life. It's Jesus' answer to the question, what does it mean for us to truly live our lives? And we also saw that it's not just an invitation from Jesus into that, but it is him radically redefining what even is a good life. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And we started to see that in those first four Beatitudes that we covered off, it's, it's not about having it all together. It's not about being a, 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 a person who has got everything going on from the outside as you look in. But it is those that are bruised, those that are battered, those that are broken before God. The extent to which we are like that is the extent to which we are flourishing in God's eyes. And verse 6 includes all of that, but it starts to bring in something more. It is about broken. It is about lacking. It's for those who hunger and those who thirst. But it is also bringing in longing. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's evocative, isn't it? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus isn't saying, oh, blessed are those who sort of occasionally enjoy a little bit of righteousness. Oh, yeah, I, I dabble in righteousness. That that person will be blessed. No, Jesus is saying, those that hunger, those that thirst. And that Greek word thirst is the idea of longing for something that I cannot live without. And I think it's really interesting that hunger and thirst get brought together. It's, it, it's, it's saying, I think, like, it's, it's not like saying, oh, I'm, actually, I'm kind of mostly fine. I've kind of got it all together over here, but there's just like, there's one little thing that I lack, one portion of my life that's not really together, and I'm kind of hungry for it. But if I got a bit of righteousness in my life, you know, then I'd be okay. No, it's, it's, it's kind of evoking the idea, no, the whole of my being, the whole of myself is, is consumed with a desire. I am not going to be okay until I get my hands on righteousness. It's like Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have this all-consuming desire for righteousness. And this word righteousness is absolutely pivotal for the whole sermon. It comes up again in verse 10, as we read it out, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But it comes up perhaps most significantly in verse 20 which let me just read it out. Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus then, not only does he say it emphatically like that in verse 20, but that is setting up Essentially, the rest of the sermon is an unpacking of that. What does it look like to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees 
and the scribes, and he just kind of flows through to, to show us what does your life look like for that to be true. It is a terrifying and daunting verse because the Pharisees and the scribes in those days, they were the model of righteousness. They would absolutely run rings around me and you when it came to righteousness. In many respects, they were the most godly, the most obedient, the most holy people. They, they in many ways, could be held up as an example that all of us could follow. And so on the face of it, what Jesus is asking his people to do right here is an absolutely impossible task. A task you are guaranteed to fail in. How on earth could you live this out? They're thinking, it sounds like what Jesus is asking us to do is to be more holy, more righteous, more obedient than the most righteous, holy, obedient person you could ever think of. How is this an invitation like we looked at last week? How is this a glorious, gracious thing? But yet listen to how Jesus cuts these Pharisees down in Matthew chapter 15. You hypocrites. Never a good start. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people, listen to this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Savage from Jesus. What he's saying here is that he's encouraging and exhorting us to greater righteousness, not because he's setting the bar impossibly high, no one's ever going to enter into the kingdom of God. No, what he's saying is, I'm challenging you to greater righteousness than the Pharisees because their righteousness is severely deficient. Their righteousness is not whole. Notice what he said, he says, their behavior is actually honorable. They're honoring him with their lips. They're, they're, the, what they're doing is right. It's good. But what's missing? Their hearts are far from God. So we can often read hunger after righteousness or, or live a greater righteousness. And we think Jesus is asking me to do better, to try harder, to make sure I don't mess up. But Jesus is saying here, no, no, no. Almost the opposite. He said, no, I don't want your behavior. That's not where I'm starting. That's not my focus here. He's saying, I want your heart. That's exactly what's going on in verse 6. The way that the word righteousness is, I know you're all experts in Greek, so you know all of this. You know me to point it out, but I'm a preacher. I've got to say something. The way that the the word righteousness in verse 6 is written and rendered it's peculiar. It's not what they would expect. After the, the, the expression of great desire of hunger and thirst, the expectation would be then just a little part of righteousness would be enough. But the way that the Greek renders it is in the form of whole righteousness. I am hungry and thirsty for the whole of righteousness. It's written oddly and not how you'd expect to make a point. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the whole of righteousness. Not partial righteousness, not righteousness like the Pharisees that gets it partly right. Righteousness that is whole. Righteousness that is lived out from the heart. Michael Green, the theologian and author that writes on this, says, 
this whole phrase breathes wholeheartedness. This is what, excuse me, this is what Jesus is trying to express in this verse. He's saying this is what makarios looks like. This is what the good life, the flourishing life looks like for me and you. His vision for the blessed life is that we would be consumed by a desire to give every single bit of ourselves, to surrender our hearts, every single part of our life, to living the way of Jesus. And just before I move on from this, at the danger of absolutely hammering this point, but it's just so important we get this right. This is, Jesus is not, at this point, asking after our behavior. He's saying this is a position of the heart. He is not saying, blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who are getting every, every single thing right. He's not going after our behavior. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to fully give their life over to Jesus. It's a posture of surrender. Notice how in that verse 20 I read out, it was, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. And if it doesn't, you will never enter into the kingdom. It's about submission to a king, coming under the authority of another. In the late 1940s, in Westminster Chapel in London, the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones stood up before his congregation and in his introduction to his sermon on the Mount series, he said this, the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. Faith that looks good on the surface, but underneath there's not much there. Faith that perhaps makes a great effort to be noticed on Sunday, but then Monday rolls round and it's nowhere to be seen. Faith that perhaps does the externals right, maybe goes through the motions, but isn't lived out from a place of wholehearted desire and love for God. I think in today's culture, today's church culture, we are all vulnerable to living out a superficial faith. Because the culture that we live in today is more superficial than probably any culture has ever been. Image is absolutely everything. We, re we, we no longer read very much, but we watch an awful lot. It's natural for many of us to live out our lives on image-based platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. But it's increasingly becoming a truism in our culture that what we see is all that there is. And I th just think there's a danger that, that some of that just starts to creep into the church for every one of us. That we start to think, oh, so long as I get the externals right, as long as I present the right image, that actually what is going on underneath doesn't even really matter. I think as it, is, as it was true in the 1940s, I think even more true is it today. And yet, 
I also think there is something else going on. The more that I speak to people, people in Revelation Church, people in other pastors that are serving here in Manchester, other people involved in other churches across the country, the more it feels like I'm constantly having very similar conversations with people. That there is a lot of superficiality within the church and within Christians. And and yet, in the midst of all of that, it just seems like there's something else stirring beneath the surface. Something that some people I've heard call a holy discontent. A reaction against that which is superficial. It's a discontent with the state that the church or the way that the church is seen in wider society. It's a discontent with the state of the church as it is and just think, oh, the church could be so much more. But most importantly and primarily, it is a discontent with our the own state of our hearts, a discontent with our own faith, a look inside ourselves and think there are aspects of my faith that are superficial, that I I wish my allegiance and my loyalty to Jesus was so much more than it is. That we've perhaps seen the devastating effects of superficial faith that we've maybe had friends and they seemed red hot for Jesus. They were going after him, but they've fallen away. Perhaps leaders in the church that seemed so faithful, seemed so godly, but they've just stopped running. Maybe it's just another celebrity pastor after celebrity fa- pastor, moral failure after moral failure. And again, maybe just your own life. You're starting to see that superficial, one foot in, one foot out faith just doesn't work. That you, you know it, it promises so much and seems, to do, seems like it's, it's a good path to go down, but in the end it is an impossible and spiritually bankrupting path to go down. That you started to perhaps see the gap, even in your own heart, of where your faith level currently is at. And all that it could be. And there's a discontent there. I think part of the reason that God has led us to this series is that I do think that there are hearts in this room, there are people watching online right now, that you can identify with this discontent, that there is something just below the surface of your being a desire, deep desire to live this way of wholeheartedly for Jesus. And it's, it's perhaps at the moment lying dormant and that it's just beginning to stir of just, I can't go on like this. I want to give myself to Jesus. I want to live for him. And I believe that as you relate to this, perhaps this sense of holy discontent, maybe that phrase works for you, maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but that this series could be Jesus' rallying call for you, a catalyst to say, come and live this life, come and be consumed with a deep desire to live for me and my righteousness. Verse 6 again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
what Jesus is saying here is this is the only path to satisfaction. The inner deep satisfaction that all of us long for. Just, just take a moment to hear the weight of those words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We will not be satisfied if we say, yeah, I'm going to follow after Jesus with everything that I've got, but I still want to be able to spend my money however I want to. Yeah, I, I really want to follow Jesus, but I think his sexual ethic is a bit outmoded, outdated. Yeah, I want to I want to give my life to following Jesus. I still want to be able to be judgmental about people on Facebook. He's saying no deep satisfaction will not come through pick and choose theology. It only comes through embracing everything of who he is with everything of who we are. Everything. Jesus wants us to be under absolutely no illusions of exactly how costly this is going to be for us. Verse 10. Blessed are you when others, excuse me, blessed are are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So that righteousness that we crave after is going to lead to persecution. Thanks very much, Jesus. Verse 11 now. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Almost a direct repetition, but almost an expansion on the previous Beatitudes. This is Jesus restating this final statement, emphatically leading up to, with rhetorical power, the climax, the moment in his Beatitudes. If this is all that it's leading up to is... You are going to be persecuted. You're going to be reviled. He's amplifying it by bringing repetition to it and unpacking it even as he goes. And as if amplifying it wasn't enough, he also personifies it. He speaks to his disciples and the crowds are listening in. We know that. He's speaking a broadcasted message But now, verse 11, as he goes down into some of the detail, he directly addresses the disciples. He looks them in the eye and speaks right to them and says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. As he brings this introduction to a climax and sets the stage for the rest of his sermon, He's saying, look, this is my vision for life at its fullest. This is the flourishing life. This is what it looks like to prosper in the kingdom of God. Give yourself to me so fully, so wholeheartedly that it will end up costing you everything. You will be reviled. People will utter evil against you. You will be shamed. You will be scorned. You will lose any kind of social standing that you have. You will be hated by society. You will be despised. You will be rejected. And these 12 that he's addressing and looking right in the eye and saying, 
blessed are you, well, tradition tells us that just about every single one of them then goes on to not just be persecuted in a mild way, but to lose their life for their faith, martyred as they follow after Jesus. Jesus is emphatically saying, the good life is losing your life. This is Jesus's radical, shocking redefinition of what the blessed life looks like. This is Makarios, the climax and the pinnacle of it. His kingdom vision of human flourishing is true life, is letting go of everything you have, even a claim on your own life, so that we can pursue him with the whole of who we are. His invitation of come and live is also an invitation of come and die. This takes tremendous amounts of courage and faith for us to live out and to choose to say yes to. But even as, it, as we count the cost and we see just how, how much this is going to, the implications it's going to have for our life, we also see that as Jesus' hand is reaching out for us, he's not reaching out to take from us, but he's reaching out to give. Just taking verses 8, 9, and 10. For they shall see God. For they shall be called sons of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even as he's saying this is what the good life looks like, he's also saying this is where the good life will lead you. This is where if you follow my path all the way, this is what you've got waiting at the end. You will see God. Behold him in all of his glory. You will know him more, more deeply. You'll see him more clearly. You'll experience him more profoundly. For they shall be called sons of God. You will be so transformed that you will start to look like God himself. He is going to take us out of and remove us increasingly from the kingdom of this world and the, the traps of this world and move us more and more into the likeness of God himself. And then finally, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We may not have a claim on our own lives, <laughs> but we've got a claim on all of the riches of heaven. <laughs> Everything that rightly belongs to the king, Jesus, he shares with us and says, this is yours. They are blessings future, for they shall, and their blessings present, for theirs is. It is really no wonder that Jesus then says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rob and Gareth, do you want to come up? Jesus here is, is longing for our hearts. This is the tone of the Beatitudes, and it's the tone of the whole sermon, really, is he's reaching out and saying, I just, if I can get your heart... If I can have that, 
full loyalty and allegiance to me if you will follow me whatever the cost. He's reaching out to appeal, uh, reaching out for our hearts, and in doing so, he appeals to the desires of our hearts. So if only you'll trust me, there is rich, eternal kingdom rewards for you. So we're going to sing a final song now, and then I I just want to come back and create an opportunity for us to respond in prayer to some of these things. To perhaps just have a moment before God to say, I'm going to do something about what I've heard.